My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is the Mission Innovation Podcast. Which in 2006 and probably through about 2010, there was that extreme encouragement for physicians and other providers to treat everybody's pain. And suddenly all of the regulatory bodies are turning around now and saying, uh, we're over-treating everybody and we need to stop that. And it's sometimes difficult uh, for physicians to think that they're doing something correctly when suddenly they're stopping somebody's medications. The National Institute on Drug Abuse has noted that every day in the United States, 115 people die after overdosing on opioids. The drugs we are speaking about are prescription pain relievers, heroin, and synthetic opioids such as fentanyl. It's clear that this is a national crisis affecting the public health of our communities as well as their social and economic welfare. In this episode, you will hear the story of an innovative award-winning community collaborative with St. Gabriel's Hospital in Little Falls, Minnesota, that is successfully responding in that community to their opioid crisis. This replicable program is spreading not only in the state of Minnesota, but nationally. This story will be told by members of the community some of whom participate on the community collaborative response called the Morrison County Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force. Our first guest is a patient, Monica, now 26, who at 17 was involved in a car accident on the way to school. She began taking prescription pain medication to address the painful injuries she suffered in her legs and feet. Her recovery process saw her develop an addiction to opioid pain medication. Hi, Kevin. I'm Monica Rudolph. I grew up in Little Falls, Minnesota here, and I'm 26 years old. And uh, my whole issue with painkillers and opiates and the whole addiction started when I was on my way to school. I was 17, uh, going on 18, driving to school, and I had gotten in a car accident and had broken Um, broken like toes and torn ligaments in my knee and just completely had eviscerated that my right leg, uh, you know, was evaluated, casted, given crutches, given painkillers and sent on my way. So I obviously went back home and continued with my care at home, you know, around town, around Little Falls here. How did addiction occur for you? How did that start? And what, what was that like for you? So my addiction occurred so subtly that I was able to convince myself that I wasn't addicted. You know, that was that was a big thing for me was the denial and the defenses that I had to to convince myself and others that I didn't have a problem. Uh, you know, it, it started it started with the painkillers and progressed to heroin. It didn't progress overnight, over, you know, weeks, over months. It was years you know, years that it took me to go from the painkillers to the heroin. So like I said, I was able to convince myself that I was in control, that I didn't have an issue that, you know, that it was, it was just normal for me. It was okay. It wasn't going to be a problem in the future. It wasn't a problem now. Um, And I continued to use all the way up until I was 25. So I, you know, had spent money, tons and tons of money on the painkillers. And then when they weren't enough was when I had switched to heroin. I could buy more with the amount of money I had and get a better high. 
What, what, what was the story of the beginning of the change for you? My beginning of change was I had hit absolutely rock bottom. I mean, there, there was nowhere for me to go but up. You know, I was 25 years old. I didn't have a dollar to my name. I didn't have a driver's license. I had been evicted for the second time. Um, living with my parents and, you know, doing anything that I had to to get money for drugs. And I remember my my parents had actually confronted me. You know, it it was it was pretty head on. You know, they they approached me and told me, you know, what's going on. We know that something is, and that is when I kind of realized that hey, you know, I have great resources right in front of me that will help me with with my addiction and with you know the issues that I'm having. So I might as well you know, accept that and embrace it. I mean, not everybody gets gets the opportunity to recover. You know, I have my best friend who had overdosed and died, you know, so that was when I kind of realized this is my opportunity. You know, this is my time to, to either go down, which there's nowhere else to go or go up and embrace the fact that I can live a normal life while still being an addict. You know, I'll always be an addict but being able to, you know, live and prosper and get on with my life. You know, I think the biggest thing for me, especially being an addict, was the judgment and, the, you know, the shame and embarrassment that I carried around with me. You know, I think that a lot of people don't, you know, don't understand that whether they believe it was, you know, a choice or not a choice. I think it just is really important that everybody just kind of accepts that, you know, certain people here, they are drug addicts, they are trying to better their lives and, you know, treating them like outcasts or, you know, not, you know, not treating them with respect isn't going to help anything. You know, I feel that everybody should, should be able to, you know, come out about their addiction and not feel scared and not feel like people are going to judge them you know, I didn't want other people to judge my family based on my choices. So I think that a big part of, you know, helping everybody heal and just dealing with this as a community is accepting the addicts for who they were, who they are now, and, you know, how they're trying to move on and better their life. You know, this community recognized, not only recognized that it had a problem, but they also found a way to help with that problem and not just recognize it and then put it in the back of their mind. I mean, they tackled it head on and that is just extremely inspiring. And, and like I said, eye opening. I'm in awe of, of everybody in this program and how far they have come. You know, it's, it's really, like I said, it really makes me proud to think that not only is this here, but now, you know, my community where I'm from and where, I chose to get help to get help is now helping other communities set up a program like this so that other people like me who are struggling who you know absolutely hate their life and don't know where to turn have somebody or something to turn to you know that was the biggest thing when when I was an addict was not knowing how to get help not not even knowing the first step to take you know not knowing who to call where to call and when to call so, you know, it makes me really proud to know that that this this community is helping other communities so that people are able to reach out and they do have a lifeline. You know, they do have some someone that they can call 
and try to get help. An essential part of the community response to prescription opioids are physicians. Our next guests are two key physician champions who help lead the addiction treatment program and the ECHO training program for physicians. My name is Heather Bell. I am a full-spectrum family medicine doctor. I've been in Little Falls since 2012, right after I finished residency in Sioux Falls. I am not originally from a rural community, grew up in the Twin Cities, but have lived here now since then. I do have four small kids, an eight, six, three, and one-year-olds. Yeah, I do pretty much everything family medicine. I still deliver babies. I do full spectrum, and then now do the medication-assisted treatment for the last little over two years. Kurt would go to you next, just an introduction. My name is Kurt Devine. I'm a, I'm a family practice doctor in, in uh, Little Falls, Minnesota. I've been here since 1990. Uh, I also trained in Sioux Falls, for where my family practice residency was completed, and like uh, Dr. Bell, also went to the University of Minnesota, although just a few years before her. And I have done full-spectrum family practice with OB until the last uh, eight or nine years. I stopped obstetrics and began doing medical-assisted treatment for both opioid and heroin addiction. Could you tell me the story of how you began participating with the task force? So what happened really was that when we went to this meeting and they, they actually had all these, this funding, we really wondered exactly how we were going to you know, form a team or what were we going to do to really decrease the narcotics. And and it was really interesting that we sat around this very table we're at right now and and looked at each other about, well, what are we going to do? How, what kind of a team are we going to put together to help monitor patients who take narcotics? And I think essentially what we needed to do is decide if patients were getting narcotics they didn't need or were they diverting them or using them inappropriately, which is honestly quite quite common. And we actually uh, Googled it. I don't know if I can use Google on a podcast, but we Googled it trying to find out if anybody had developed a team in a clinic before that was that was the main goal was to do this particular thing. And in fact, we could find nothing. Uh, we called people, we, we looked online, and we finally just made it up ourselves. We just decided we were going to form this team with a, with a nurse and myself and an administrator and eventually a social worker. And then eventually I got strong-armed into letting Dr. Bell on the team. And, and basically what we do is we, we really look at every patient that is on narcotics or benzodiazepines or uh, any controlled substance, and we review their chart for the appropriateness of those prescriptions. And we closely monitor those patients. We have them sign contracts, which in the old days was called a pain contract. We call it a controlled substance care plan now. And it, which allows us to really review their chart and make sure that they get pill counts and urine testing when appropriate. And this whole thing started up in 2015. And I think one of the most misguided statements I've ever made, I, I said at the beginning of this program that in six months, we'd have this all figured out and, and be done. That was three years ago. And we're maybe 75 or 80% through the patients that need review. So this is a long, difficult process that continues. For our listening audience, could you offer us a little education on the impact of opioids uh, on the brain and on behavior? Because I know that Jason, Gary, others find that a helpful awareness, and I think it'll be helpful for our listeners as well. Would you offer us what that looks like? 
opioids affect the brain uh, they by attaching to certain receptors in the brain that then give you your you know analgesic or your numbing response so why you don't feel pain but they also affect where you know your breathing center they affect your alertness center they affect just overall sensation and emotion they act in the the frontal lobe which is kind of the adulting center of the brain um, they act at your pleasure center of your brain and so they either heighten everything or they kind of numb everything over time the effect begins to to not be as strong which is why people need to take more and more to get that same effect a person who's high on heroin for instance will be what the patients called faded out they just kind of go off to sleep and just are numb to everything they don't have to feel pain they don't have to feel emotion they don't have to feel anything over time that continues so then when you stop using opioids, everything is heightened. Um, they get nauseous, they get vomiting, body aches. They're just in this anxious, anxious state. And this is the whole premise behind why MAT and medication-assisted treatment is so important, is that unlike other addictions that abstinence-based treatment it works, abstinence-based treatment and opioid addiction does not work because the brain cannot actually function because the opioids have changed those receptors so much. So using MAT, like Suboxone or Buprenorphine, act on those receptors so the body functioned normally, but with Buprenorphine, it's a partial binder to those receptors, and so you can't get that high, you can't get that euphoria, but yet you can function at a normal place. You have normal breathing, you have normal alertness, over time, your body, the hope is that it does return back to normal, but then buprenorphine typically can be used and needs to be used longer term, longer than five years, because if you take that buprenorphine away, the body physically, the brain physically craves that opioid, and that would then lead to relapse. As you work with other physicians or healthcare providers, how receptive are they to this program? Uh, that's a that's a great question. Because... That's why I had a baby, so I didn't have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is really the biggest and hardest part of I think what we do, not only in our clinic but wherever we speak, because there's a certain number of the providers, uh, and I'd include physicians, nurse practitioners, and PAs, that for whatever reason they just aren't going to really respond to the message that we're trying to to give and. And I think that even in our own clinic, where we are constantly uh, approaching these these providers about patients and issues, I would say three quarters of them are very receptive. And early on in our program, it was less. Part of my job was really when we had these issues where physicians were a little bit resistant to change, it was really my job to go and sit down with them and explain our issue and the problem and why we wanted to discontinue medications on a particular person or closely, more closely monitor them. And so I think that this is a, this is a tough thing, changing a physician culture, which in 2006 and probably through about 2010, there was that extreme encouragement for physicians and other providers to treat everybody's pain. And suddenly all of the regulatory bodies are turning around now and saying, uh, we're over-treating everybody and we need to stop that. And it's sometimes difficult uh, for physicians to think that they're doing something correctly when suddenly they're stopping somebody's medications. And it's really that re-education and change in the culture 
that really started in the early 2000s, which is really the most difficult part of our job. I think that's not going to go away quickly. And I think that's obvious because, you know, last year we had 60,000 overdose deaths and this year we still had 72,000. So obviously in this country, there's still that issue. I think we all wish it would go over, that would be done more quickly, but this is a problem that's going to take many years to, to turn this boat around. To understand how community pharmacists have become involved in the program offered by the task force, we spoke with pharmacist Gary Spurl, who works at a local grocery store chain and volunteers his participation in the task force. Gary, how has this task force helped you? We've done what we can do in this pharmacy for 10 years, but until this group came together really in earnest now and with the collaborative approach of so many different specialty areas, we now have some teeth to it. So there's different studies how long to say maybe after six or seven months, there really isn't much benefit from those pain meds anymore, or the only way to do it is to keep increasing the dose. And so you can just keep going back to your doctor and say, doc, it's just not doing it. I'm still I've still got pain. What, what's that doctor supposed to do? He can refer you on to physical therapy, et cetera, some of that. Some of it might be you're just working them. You might really not have that much pain, and nobody knows that probably be, besides the patient and the doctor. So my role then is if that doctor has determined that, yes, I need oxycodone for Kevin Murphy for a 30-day supply, and he uses four a day, I'm going to give him 120 tablets. He gets 120 tablets on the 1st of September. He can get another 120 on the 1st of October. Well, Kevin is going to say, well, I'm nervous because I don't have any on the 1st of October, and I don't want to start going into kind of withdrawal symptoms, so I'm going to try to get that filled on the 25th of September. The insurance company is saying, well, we got to allow Kevin some time to be able to manage his life, so we're going to let that go through five days early or seven or three different insurance companies do different things. So now you get it filled on the 25th, so you still have four, four days left, right? Five days left of medication, and now you're already into your next bottle, which the pharmacy is relieved. My job with the doctor's writing habits, and so all of our doctors in our community now are on board with our task force recommendation that if you have a patient like that, you write on there. I had two prescriptions this morning already. Must last 30 days. So he came in at 8 o'clock this morning because today would be day 31, and he's legitimately able to get it today, but not yesterday. So we hold the line on that. We make them come in today, and sometimes it might be a little inconvenient, but we're open seven days a week, so there's really no excuse when they can't come in on the day they're supposed to. So does that make sense? We gave you your 30 days, but we didn't give you it early, and therefore... If you're part of our care plan and you've agreed to random tablet counts and you've agreed to random drug screening and you've gotten 30 days of medication, you should have at day 15, you should have, end of day 15, you should have 15 days left and you should have product in your system indicating that you're taking that medication. If you don't, then we've got some things we got to talk about. You know, where did the tablets go? Are you using more? Why are you using more? Is it authorized or not authorized? So my job is kind of to keep track of all those people. And there's 
hundreds of them, not only from this clinic, but from other clinics that we fill prescriptions for, from the Mayo Clinic to Minneapolis to St. Cloud to, you know, towns, you know, three, four hours away to two hours away. Uh, people might have gone down for a referral and be doctoring in Minneapolis 100 miles away and coming back here to fill their prescription because hopefully we've developed a relationship with them that they they trust us for their their care. For me, I've always been a bit passionate about it because I have seen, you know, I'm 63 years old and I've got kids and I've got a son who's a pharmacist and another son who's a doctor and I've got I see my youngest son, who's 28 now, I see some of his fellow hockey players, kids he grew up with are, are addicts. And they were, those are good kids back then. You know, they weren't into the problems that they're into now. And so once you realize that, you realize that, you know, you got to look at these people as individuals, not as, you know, all the they're an act addict. They're a terrible person, etc. They're not. They were they were good kids. They went astray. They got into the wrong group. Some of it's their own choice. I don't minimize the fact that they definitely have skin in the game on their own end of it. But we, I've changed a bit for me the outlook on these are people that help just like I would help somebody with heart disease or with diabetes or with, you know, high blood pressure. They have an addiction. They have a disease state. And I look at them differently. And as I've gotten to know people like, you know, Monica and others, I realize they they really respect that as our team, how we are treating them. And I think that's a real big positive for our group. That could be your kid who gets their teeth a tooth removed, wisdom teeth removed, and get some some hydrocodone and likes it, you know. For me, I had a kidney stone. I took a hydrocodone. I threw up violently. I didn't like it. No good. But that's, you know, as I'm talking to these folks, some do and some don't. And the ones that get in trouble are the ones that their body just really likes it. So you got to look at it differently. And then you treat them just one case after one case and you try to follow them through as many ways as you can to keep them keep them clean and uh, that's what's pretty pretty exciting right now about our operation my name is jason mcdonald and i'm an investigator with the morrison county sheriff's office located in little falls minnesota i've been on the prescription drug task force coalition that we're talking about today since uh, the beginning of january of 2015 really really kind of since that coalition came together. And in those four years, I've been able to bring my experience in law enforcement, what I see on the streets as a drug cop, and bring that to the group. And my paramedic background is has been beneficial in the fact that uh, dealing with addiction and, and what we're facing, there's a lot of medical aspects to it as well. And my medical background has helped me kind of understand things a little bit more, I think, than the, the general officer might understand without some greater explanation. That's a very diverse and, and competent background for this area. Take me back, if you could, to the, the day, the moment that your collaboration with the coalition began and what that was like to be able to be engaged with that type of collaboration among various disciplines for you, a police officer. Uh, yeah, so I got invited to, well, actually, I think it was the sheriff originally had been invited to 
come down and, you know, meet with this group and, and see what we can do for law enforcement. My sheriff was a new sheriff. I was a new narcotics investigator. And he just asked me if I would go down to this meeting and uh, see what this was all about. And I got down there and, and met with the group and my, my partner on the task force. Uh, I have a partner assigned uh, from Little Falls Police Department that assists on the task force. And he was down there and we started kind of getting a story of why they were doing this. And we were able to offer our perspective. I didn't have a, a lot to offer initially because I was just, I was a new narcotics agent. But it was amazing to see how many people were, were willing to come to the table and, and deal with this issue. Seeing doctors willing to work to get other doctors to stop prescribing as many opioid prescriptions and having social workers there willing to help and the county attorney and pharmacies willing to help with what they could. It was, it was, it was interesting to see. It was, it was definitely a different perspective from what I would normally be involved in in law enforcement. If you look at law enforcement, you talk to my guys out on the street, you know, they don't understand the problem really. And their job is to go out and arrest these guys and throw them in jail. And when you start looking at addiction as a whole and and understanding that, you know, especially with opioids, these, these people just can't, they get sick if they're, if they're not on them. And understanding that and understanding why they commit their crimes to get their drugs that they need kind of takes you to a different perspective on it. And I, I think that was the biggest eye opener once I started getting involved in this program. As a law enforcement officer, I, you know, warrants came across the desk. I found a user out on the street. They had dope on them. I arrested them, put them in jail. And you'd like to think that you could look past that and see a person. And we're not without feelings. We, I mean, I feel terrible when I got to throw someone in jail, especially in front of their kids or in front of, you know, you're, you're hauling people off in front of their friends and, and family. And, and it, it's not that we're without feelings, but you look at it as I have a job to do. I got to put them in jail. And understanding, especially the opioid addiction and, and what it does to you psychologically and, and physiologically is um, just brings a different perspective to it. And you look at the person, and when I'm interviewing someone that, that's been arrested, they're withdrawing you see the the pain you're go, they're going through. And I, I didn't understand that until I really had worked with this group for a while. And and I, I have a little bit different understanding now of, of what, I mean, I've never gone through it personally, but I've seen it firsthand so many times with these people and understanding the background of how this affects them has, has opened my eyes uh, a little bit more, I would say. Now, having participated with the coalition See, for people just the amount of time that you have, can you describe to me what you feel is the particular that, and perhaps unique contribution that, that law enforcement need. brings to a coalition kind of like this that wants to respond to addiction I, I in the community? Well, I think the biggest thing we're able to provide is, is what we see firsthand out on the street. And as a doctor sitting in an office prescribing medication, as a county attorney that's reading our reports, as a social worker that's dealing with these people 
in a hospital or clinical setting, they don't get to see firsthand what we see. When we go into these people's houses executing search warrants, when we're out on the street buying drugs, when we're dealing with these addicts firsthand as they're either in the jail or being arrested and coming off these things, we see a different side of life that normal society does not get to see. They don't get to see what these what the living conditions are of, of a lot of addicts. There are many homes that we've gone into where when we are done with, you know, searching the house or whatever, you know, you would just want to go home and shower. When you see how the addiction has taken over their lives and they can't care for their children anymore, and these children are are living in terrible conditions or living with parents that just don't care about their kids because they're so focused on their next high. It's something normal society doesn't see. So we bring back our experiences, what we've seen out there, and try to help them understand what's going on out on the street. Then not only that is we want to bring to the table too what we can do to help with that in terms of how can I get this person more than just throwing them in jail? What help can I get them? Being part of this group now, I understand what doctors can do. I understand what social services can do. I understand what corrections can do. And so I bring back the stories and uh, what we've we've come up with now is it's, it's very easy for me to call one of the doctors and say, hey, I've got a person that's withdrawing here. I'd rather get them into treatment. Sometimes jail is, you know, the best place for them. It's a safe place for them. But if I get them into treatment, especially with the opioids, and get them off using and get them to be a more productive member of society, that, that's great for me. Two more leaders have had important roles in making this task force a success. Lee Boyles is CEO of St. Gabriel's Hospital in Little Falls, Minnesota. And Kathy Lang is the director for the Foundation for St. Gabriel's Hospital. Hi, my name is Lee Boyles. I've been with CHI St. Gabriel's Health here in Little Falls since June of 2014. Lee, from your point of view, what have been some of the positive outcomes due to the protocols that have been put in place? In a small community, word travels fast. And so once we put in those processes where people were not going to just have a refill of prescription narcotics, you were going to be thoroughly evaluated. We were going to research out different modalities to help treat your pain if you were really having pain. If you were somebody who were coming in that was, you know, just strictly coming for a prescription for abuse or to come and have it and to sell it, we really, we really took care of that issue too. And that changed so fast that within basically about not quite a year, our number one diagnosis in the emergency room was pain or pain-seeking behavior. And within a year, that diagnosis wasn't even in our top 20. Have you found that as you shared this with other communities, other groups, that this is replicable regardless of the size of the community? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I, I think, you know, definitely there's going to be, a, you know, probably some more resources that are required when you, when you get into larger metro areas or urban populations and those type of things. But we really believe, and that's and that's where the state has really put their trust in us in 
in you know the issuing of this latest grant where we're helping eight other communities bring our program live but i would say you know we really as as we advocate for our program you know we're in one of the poorest counties in minnesota and yes we are a small community but we do feel what we have is scalable and replicatable and can be done with it's not as it's not as many resources as one would think but it definitely is going to take some dollars to clean up this mess for sure but yeah because we're smaller in a small community sometimes i think that even offers a few more challenges because we are so limited on our resources you know we're not a huge tertiary facility we don't have a foundation that has millions and millions of dollars that we can just throw at this problem we've had to be very creative and very resourceful and very good stewards of our resources because we know we don't have that many of them. And it's almost, I think you almost need a little more collaboration in a small community sometimes um, because everybody wears multiple hats. You know, when I say we work with public health, uh, public health has a huge task to do in a small community. So I think to answer your question, yeah, what we have, we feel very confident can be replicated and scalable to just about any size community. Are there certain stories that as a leader, a healthcare leader in the community have touched you that you think it would be a helpful story to tell? You know, and I apologize if I get a little emotional about it, but, you know, having kids, that could happen to anybody. You know, that's just a kid driving down the street who you know, excuse me, but who happens to just get in a car accident and and wasn't really, you know, was wasn't really intending to become addicted. And and that's where I think we feel probably more responsibility because, you know, and I and I'm not saying just St. Gabe's, but for all providers in general, because we really didn't fully understand the power of addiction and the power of the pills that we were dishing out. And so when you hear a story like Monica's and to hear her turn around her, you know, her life to where she's just driving down the road and is in a car accident. And the next thing you know, she's addicted to painkillers. And the next thing you know, she's addicted to heroin. No teenage kid or no child or, or no, I mean, just nor any normal adult. That's not what they're looking to do, you know. And, and I think that's where we kind of, I think all of us and, and especially our providers too, it wasn't by any intent did we did we mean to do harm or 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 prescribe medications that we we felt weren't we weren't looking to try to do the best thing we could do for our patients. But I think her story is just so, you know, just so positive of how she completely turned her life around and, and we have so many of them and and it kind of makes it all worthwhile for sure. Hi, my name is Kathy Lang. I am the foundation director here at CHI St. Gabriel's Health, and I am also the leader of the Morrison County Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force. Our Morrison County Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force consists of about 12 community partners, but about 30 of those partners are little off-sites and interested community members. They include the Morrison County Public Health, Morrison County Social Services, Horizon Health in Peers, of course, the Family Medical Center and our pharmacist here, Coburn's Pharmacy, Stand Up For You Coalition, Northern Pines, the Morrison County Sheriff's Office, and the Little Falls Police Department. 
as well as representatives from our quality improvement department here at the hospital. When you first reached out to those who are and and they became your partners, was it everybody got on board right at the beginning quite quickly? Was it a slow burn over time? How did that occur? Actually, when I reached out to a list of potential partners, I never got a no. They were all, we need to do something about this. So it was like our community knew it was all going on in each of our little silos, but nobody was coming together to figure out how to solve the problem as a whole and as as one entity. So it was kind of a a divine intervention with having this grant opportunity and just someone initiating in the community, you know, please come to our meeting. Let's see what we can do together. Can you offer any stories that best demonstrate for you some of the transformation that's occurred because of this work that you've done? The story to me that is probably the most influential, Dr. Devine and I were sitting in Washington, D.C., and we were getting ready to fly back. We had done uh, two congressional briefings, one with former Senator Al Frank and the other with Congressman Rick Nolan. So we were sitting outside, this was in September, and getting our food, and a young man in a nice suit came upon our table, and he took off his took out his earbuds and said, Thank you guys for doing what you do. My sister died of a heroin overdose last year. And if there were more programs out there like yours, she would be with me today. I listened to you speak. Thank you so much for what you do. And then he put his earbuds in and walked off. And we both looked at each other like, oh my gosh, that's why we're here. You know, I mean, we were sitting in Washington, D.C. talking about our community. But when you're sitting in you know, the nation's capital, and that happens to you, it's you take a step back and and are really proud that you did the work. Today, our conversation offers an innovative and replicable response to the opioid epidemic from Little Falls, Minnesota. Resources such as the Program Replication Manual and a link to the ECHO Program for Physicians and Healthcare Providers are posted with this podcast on our website at missiononline.net. Appreciation to our guests and listeners. Thanks, everyone. I'm Kevin Murphy. This is the Mission Innovation Podcast.